reading this morning is from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gathers prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do take a seat. Ollie's sitting down. That's good. Stay there. As we sit, let's say a prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are the God who speaks. Thank you that through these words written some 2,600 years ago, you will speak to us, that as you uh, inspired them uh, through Habakkuk, you had each of us with our own situations in your mind, and you knew the words that we would uh, hear this morning, the way we would hear them. And so we ask you, dear Father, speak to each one of us by your Spirit, Uh, rebuke us, convict us, challenge us, build us up. Help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly. For his glory's sake. Amen. Humans have, we have a capacity, don't we, to get used to things. Corona has thrown the world into deep confusion. And yet it's amazing how quickly people have got used to the new normal. The ability to adjust is, is a, I think, a part of what makes humans so wonderful. We can get used to all kinds of inconveniences and, and distress. But it has a dark side to it. I once remember a number of years, years ago the harrowing privilege of sitting with somebody who'd been, um, I guess for want of a better word, abused. Uh, they'd been uh, kind of manipulated over a number of years. And as I listened to that story, the striking thing was they'd got used to it. What was abnormal had become normal, just the way the world was. And when you think about it, we all do that, don't we? Not to the same extent, that was a particularly uh, extreme example, but we get used to life in a fallen world that we do not see the way the world is broken. We get used to it. Just think about it. We live in a society where it is normal to kill babies to avoid inconvenience. And we're used to it. There was much uproar last year, wasn't there, around the euthanasia bill. But the danger is we get used to the idea that it's normal to kill yourself. We get used to a situation 
similar to what is developing in the Netherlands, where the elderly are encouraged not to be a burden to society, and we get used to it. We're used, by and large, to churches up and down our land, not preaching the gospel, not to authoritatively declaring what God says, but to speaking men and women's opinions so that God's authoritative word is muzzled. And we're used to it. It's just the way the world is. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this short book of Habakkuk. We don't know much about him. We know he lives about 600 years before Christ was born. And he spoke to the people of Judah, the the northern kingdom of Israel. As we meet him in chapter 1, he is down in the dumps. He's in despair. But by the end of the book, he is singing praises. If you're with us in lockdown, you'll remember, we looked at the last few verses of this book. They're they're marvellous words of joyful praise. What I want us to do in these three weeks is go on this journey with Habakkuk, from today down in the dumps, to see how the Lord reveals himself to bring him to a place of joy. It's not that his outward circumstances change, but his understanding of who he is as God's servant in God's world has changed. Well, the reason Habakkuk is crying out is because he's refused to get used to the brokenness of the world. Verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? God's people are in a mess. They've abandoned God. They've turned to idols. And the result is society is in chaos. God seems to do nothing. Look at verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. But rather than shrug his shoulders and say, that's the way things are, it bugs him. It drives him to this prayer. Well, the way this prophecy comes is in the form of a dialogue. Habakkuk speaks to God. God speaks to Habakkuk. Now, we're just looking at the first bit of that today, verses 1 to 11. uh, And we see first that Habakkuk speaks in 1 to 4. He complains, really, doesn't he? He says, in short, Lord, your people are in a mess. They're corrupt. And I'm crying out to you, but you do nothing. You don't keep your promises. It's as if you're asleep on the job. And then in 5 to 11, God replies to Habakkuk. And he says, I am doing something. I'm preparing a judgment that will blow your mind. And in each section, I want us to come away with one challenge and one encouragement. We're going to spend most of our time on on Habakkuk's section. But the uh, the first encouragement is this. uh, Sorry, the first challenge is this. Do you see the mess of the world? Do you see the brokenness of the world? Do I see the brokenness of the world? Or have we just got used to it? Look again at the beginning of verse 3. Habakkuk says, Why do you make me look at injustice? Now I know there are some people here who see the injustice of the world very keenly. You feel it either in your own situation or you look out at others and you can't, but help be hurt and pained. But I wonder if many of us are rather oblivious to that. We, we don't see the world as Habakkuk sees it. We, perhaps in a way it's a coping mechanism. If we did see it and feel it, we'd be overwhelmed, and so we just detach ourselves from reality, turn our eyes away. Now these words are challenging because the way Habakkuk sees is a godly way. His frustration reminds me of the Lord Jesus in a number of ways. Think of the way the Lord Jesus boldly 
rebuked the Pharisees for the way that they are obsessed with religion, but they ignored justice and mercy and faithfulness. This question, how long, O Lord, was on God's lips in Exodus before it was on Habakkuk's. It's on the Lord Jesus' lips in Matthew, I think, 13, after it's on Habakkuk's. It's a godly question. Habakkuk isn't asking it because he's a faithless man. It's precisely because he's a man of faith that that he asks this. He knows that God is good. If you've got a Bible, look on to verse 13 where he says, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. He knows God is good. And yet he looks around and sees the world, God's world. He looks around and sees much of God's people in such a mess that he wonders how can both work together? How can God not do something? Well, we're not explicitly told the situation going on in Judah. We get a sense of it, don't we, from these verses. Verse 2, he talks about violence. Verse 3, injustice. Uh, We're told that destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Injustice and wrongdoing are normal. The elderly, the weak, foreigners, the poor, they're shoved out of the way routinely. Neighbors fight with neighbors. Theft, murder, social ills are common. Employers don't pay their employees what they promise. People routinely fiddle the IRD. And these social problems are intertwined with spiritual disobedience. Look at verse 4. The law is paralyzed. That's not just the law of the land, but God's law, God's word, his teaching is disregarded. Now sometimes people think that those people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law. That's to say, God gave them a whole bunch of commands and they did their best and if they kept it perfectly, then God would save them. But not so. The law in the Old Testament works in a very similar way to the law for us. As they had God's law, his word, they knew how they were to live, but they also saw God's character. And they saw as they tried to keep it that they they couldn't keep it. And it drove them back to God to cry out for mercy. And then as people who'd been forgiven, who'd had their sins wiped away, the law guided them individually and corporately to live in a way that God designed them to. Much the same as us. We don't keep the law to earn our salvation. It's precisely because we're saved, if we're saved, that we know God, uh, God's way is best and then by his spirit we keep it. But the problem is, these guys have turned away from God. They've begun to worship the idols of the nations around them. And they don't have this saving relationship with God and so the law becomes paralyzed. It can't show them how to live. Or it shows them and they ignore it. And the result is individual and societal chaos. And in Judah's case, it started from the top down. As Habakkuk's writing this, it's highly likely that Jehoiakim is the king on the throne. Jehoiakim was a bad king. He hated God. He hated God's word. He hated it so much that when Jeremiah the prophet sent him a scroll with God's words written on it, Jehoiakim chopped it up into pieces and threw the little pieces into the fire. Now, we don't live in a society where people are literally chopping up God's word. If anything, people use it sometimes, don't they? There's a talisman. Think of Trump outside that church. There's something good about the Bible. And yet, it's dishonored. It's routinely ignored. We can all think of many examples of that. But my question is, do we see that for the evil that it is? 
in the last 12 months, been a number of high-profile church leaders who are found to be guilty of double standards, guilty of uh, abuse and all kinds of other things. And, and these are not funny people out there, kind of strange, kind of cultish leaders. Uh, Joel Stribus and I went through our church library and I found a number of books by people who'd fallen in the last 12 months. They're people we would have read. The question is, though, do we ignore that? Part of the reason those guys were able to get away with it is that people around them kind of turned half an eye to what they, they were seeing or they refused to see. Or do we see what is evil as evil? Or do we just shrug and excuse sin? In many places, transgenderism is taking off. The, the theory that uh, gender is fluid and um, you can choose what gender you want to be. And on the surface, it sounds like an issue of freedom and justice. But scratch below that, and there's tremendous pressure from a number of political groups on vulnerable children, vulnerable young adults, promising that if they take puberty blockers or, or, or have surgery, it will solve their ills. And we're beginning to hear the, the fruit of that. People who've been through that 10 years ago, who are now adults, who are traumatized for it. And do we see that, I'm making it simplistic, but do we see that element of it for the evil it is? It's a form of child abuse. It's not just a debate out there. This is harming children. Do we see it for the evil it is? And friends, I don't say that to speak from some kind of moral high ground. This passage has hugely challenged me. I know that I don't see or feel much in the world. I read earlier this week, uh, the story of a young uh, mother in England who was so distraught, so um, so overwhelmed by the pressures of the, the ongoing lockdowns there that she went to her GP. And as she sat in the chair in this GP's office, she said to him, will you please take away my kids? And he assumed that she was joking. But as he listened more, he realized what she was really saying. She was so at the end of her tether she told him that if, uh, if something doesn't happen, I'm worried I may kill myself and my three children, and I love them too much. Please take them away. And as I heard that, it bugged me for a few moments. Made me offer a prayer. But then I forgot about it. And shall I tell you the thing that has bugged me most, that's consumed my prayers most this week? It's that the company I contracted to move my goods to Japan won't return my emails. <laughs> And it's trying, we all know that, don't we? It's irritating, but it's in a totally different league. And we are so out of kilter. I am so out of kilter. The things that, bug, that bother me become big things. And the huge evils in the world we just ignore, get used to. People starving around the world. People being killed in, in unjust wars. And it doesn't touch our prayer life. Now, can I challenge you, friends, if that's you, if you're used to the fallenness of the world, Will you pray, as I've been praying for us, that God would open our eyes to see the fallenness of this world, that we wouldn't be used to it? I've been struck as I've been praying that I have seen things that I ordinarily would just have moved on from. But this isn't just important. This isn't just about seeing the world as God sees it. God cares about these things. It's actually hugely important, I think, for the way we connect with the world. Because we live in a time where people actually are quite aware of the injustice of the world, aren't they? And it's not just believers, is it? People out there are hugely concerned about justice. Now, what they call justice, and we call, sometimes it's different, but it's a big issue. And the danger is we are the people who claim to know the God of justice, but we don't seem very fussed about justice sometimes. 
And for some, that's a stumbling block. You, you know this God, and, and yet you, you're, you don't care about these things. Well, if that's you, and, and you've been pained by sometimes our indifference, I'm sorry. And do you see, though, that God, we'll see it more in a minute, but God does care, and his people, too, should care. And friends, can I encourage you, next time you read a newspaper, you, you see on TV these horrendous things, don't just sit there passively. Can I encourage you to engage with some of it and pray? Ask the Lord to intervene in his world. Now, if we do, if we see this, we will be more uncomfortable. We will long more for heaven and when the Lord brings justice to this world. But we will also be more like the Lord Jesus who sees and is angry at this abuse and sin. Well, that's a challenge from Habakkuk's words. Do we see? Do we see? But the encouragement is this. When we see, we can pray boldly and honestly to God. I guess if we see the world rightly in all of its ugliness, there will be a number of reactions. One of them is, is to just switch off. We've talked about that. But some become activists. Some throw money at the problem. Some become disillusioned. But the great encouragement of these verses, if we see, we can respond and do something by boldly coming to God in prayer. Look at verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. You see, Habakkuk's prayer here is really a prayer about his prayers. Lord, I've been praying to you about this and you haven't got back to me. Do you see his bold honesty here? He isn't far short of accusing God, of ignoring him, is he? Verse 2, I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Or as the English Standard Version translates this, why do you look idly at wrong? It's pretty bold, isn't it? I'm not sure I'd have the courage to say that to God. I've been reading the biography of Colin Powell. He was... Um, uh, President Reagan's national security advisor. And there was a time when he was the number two general in charge of a pretty huge base. And his boss, and really his boss's wife, I think, by the sound of it, but um, were causing a number of problems. And so the guys underneath Colin Powell basically persuaded him to go and speak to his boss. And so Colin Powell went very kind of um, uh, respectfully and brought the issue up in a kind of roundabout way. And his boss listened... And as soon as he shut the door, tried to have Colin Powell fired. Well, do you see, Habakkuk isn't like that. He doesn't beat about the bush. He doesn't come in at the issue in a kind of roundabout way and, and try and sort of play things to make it more palatable. He launches in, God, what are you up to? Why do you idly look at wrong? But unlike that general, Colin, uh, God isn't furious. He doesn't rebuke Habakkuk. He doesn't say in verse 5, how dare you speak to me like that, you insignificant creature. No, he, there is no rebuke, is there? And I take it that this kind of bold prayer is all right. We can pray like this. And again, far from being an expression of disloyalty, of, of unfaith, it's an expression of trust in God. We can and we should bring our complaints to God. But isn't that the opposite of so often what we do? I don't know about you, but so often I complain to the people around me. I grouse to the people around me. Or I grumble in my heart, and then I pray to God and I, I think I need to be all polite and, and mind my P's and Q's and, and be nice. And it's back to front. We should boldly complain to God. We should pour out our hearts to God. He is big enough 
to deal with it. And actually, if we're complaining to the right person, we don't need to grumble and grouse to those around us. But probably need a caveat here. Habakkuk is praying about something God has promised, isn't he? He's praying, how long, O Lord, you've promised that you will bless righteousness, that that your people will prosper. He's not praying, Lord, I've I've been praying for a Mercedes for 10 years and and it's still not come. How long, O Lord, till my Mercedes is delivered? It's not that kind of thing. And it's partly, I think, because he knows he's praying what God has said will happen, that he expects God to answer. I wonder if part of the reason we don't cry out passionately is we don't expect God to do anything. Or we think, oh, maybe in 10,000 years he'll do something, but he's not going to do anything now. That's just the way the world is, the way the world, the church is. So we don't bother to ask. But this encourages us to boldly, expectantly pray to God. Just think what that means in our context. Think what it might mean we should be praying for on Wednesday at the prayer meeting. God, you have said that your word will not return to you empty. And here we are beavering away, trying to tell people your word, but it seems like it's returning empty. There are more people in the palms than there are in church this morning. How long, O Lord, till you keep that promise? Lord, you have said you will blow away the wicked like chaff. And yet all around the world, the wicked seem to prosper. How long, O Lord? Lord, you have said that you long that all people come to a knowledge of the truth, and yet I cry out non-stop for my child, for my friend, for my spouse, and still they do not come to a knowledge of the truth. How long, O Lord? You see, Habakkuk encourages us to pray like that, boldly, persistently, honestly, expectantly. And isn't it wonderful? This is the kind of God we have who welcomes these prayers. But you see, though, there's something in that that doesn't change the fundamental situation. Habakkuk still feels, maybe you still feel, that God doesn't seem to be listening. Well, if that's you, you need to hear the encouragement of God's words in 5 to 11. Look at verse 5. God says to Habakkuk, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Why? Because I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told He's going to do something so incredible that Habakkuk, if told, would shake his head in disbelief. And the encouragement is this. It may seem that God is ignoring us. It may seem that God is asleep on the job, but he is powerfully working in this world in answer to our prayers. And what is the thing he's doing? Look at verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians. The Babylonians rise to power as meteoric, small nation, who eventually crushed Assyria, the superpower of the day. And in Israel, in a place where it looks like there is no justice, where it looks like evil can do whatever it likes, God raises up the Babylonians to bring judgment. And verses 6 to 11, hammer home how frightening these Babylonians are. Verse 6, they will sweep across the earth and seize dwellings not their own. Verse 9, their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. King Jehoiakim, who thought he could destroy God's word, thought he could persecute and kill God's people with impunity, faced destruction at the hand of the Babylonians. About 597 BC, the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem. Eventually, they sacked the city and they carried off a number of people, including Jehoiakim. They took him into captivity and mocked him, derided him. 
God will not be mocked. Friends, this should comfort us. Habakkuk thinks God is turning a blind eye. And yet what God does is not some kind of fudge. It's not kind of some kind of sticky plaster solution. He turns the geopolitical landscape of the Middle East upside down to achieve his purposes in answer to Habakkuk's prayers. It should comfort us. We've been thinking a fair bit about filling Chris Carr this past few weeks with uh, Phil's medical situation. But uh, a number of us were talking the other day, and it, it, think about that work. It's an incredible work, isn't it? They're in Papua New Guinea translating the scriptures, and they've been doing so for a number of decades. They're a remarkably faithful uh, couple, and God has used them greatly. But in another sense, it's so slow, isn't it? They've been laboring for decades, and, and still there's so much of the Bible that's not translated. They're laboring among these Barmu people, and there's still many of them who don't know Jesus. And it'd be easy in this instant, everything, age, to cry out, how long, O oh God, to think that God is not working. And yet he is. But his perspective is so different to ours. We're in a rush, and he isn't. But he is working. He is working. But do you see the terrible irony of what happens here? Habakkuk cries out violence. He, he's complaining about the lawlessness in Israel. And then what happens? Along comes Babylon, who, verse 9, are intent on violence. These men who, who are lawless. And in some ways, the cure is worse than the disease. And in fact, that becomes the basis of Habakkuk's next prayer. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But Lord, how can you tolerate these evil people punishing your people? The, the ones who come are even more wicked than even wicked Judah. We'll have to wrestle with that next week. But you see, although in the first instance these words were fulfilled when Babylon attacked Jerusalem about 597 BC, yet this prophecy points beyond that time to a judgment that even we will be amazed at, that even people today shake their heads at in disbelief. Not the coming of the Babylonians, but the coming of God's Son in judgment. This little judgment in history, if you like, points to the far bigger judgment at the end of history, when the risen Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, to fully and finally wipe away evil, so that the righteous may live in peace. And when Jesus returns, Habakkuk's prayers will be answered in their fullness. No one will then wonder, where is the judge? Because the judge will be here among his people. And he will comfort those who've suffered. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And from that time onward, there will be no more death or violence or mourning or crying or pain. Because this current fallen, broken order of mess and chaos will pass away. And Jesus' wonderful kingdom will be established. And he's bringing it in now. We see it partially now. And then in its fulfillment at the end of time. But God is working. Be encouraged. But friends, as we finish, here's the challenge. This place of peace can only be established by the destruction of God's enemies. And the challenge is this. If we're not on Jesus' side, then we're found to be his enemy. If like King Jehoiakim, we're rejecting God's word, whether very publicly like he is, I'm an atheist, I want nothing to do with the church, or just very quietly in our hearts, 
I'm in church every week, but frankly in the week I, I, I do what I please. Church is just for Sundays. If we are opposed to Jesus and his word, then judgment will come. And so we need to get ready. And interestingly, that's how Paul preaches this passage in the New Testament. He says in Acts 13, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. He's just preached the glorious gospel. That whatever someone has done, however much mess they've made in society or in the church or in their own life, it can all be forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. That it's all wiped away through his resurrection. But then Paul says, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he quotes verse 5 from Habakkuk, slightly different than our translation. But he says, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you, take care that that does not come upon you. And you see his point as Paul preaches to that great crowd. Now is the time of forgiveness. Now is the time to make peace with the king. But through King Jesus, God is bringing judgment. And one day it will be too late. And that is the challenge for us this morning. If we are not on Jesus' side, this judgment will still come. We need to get ready. Don't be shocked by it. But rather repent and turn back to Jesus and find forgiveness. That we might be ready for his return and the judgment of the world that will bring in this glorious righteousness. Well, may God help us to see the world aright, not to be indifferent or blind to injustice. And as we see it, let's pray boldly to God. Let's rejoice that he's answering our prayers. He's bringing in his kingdom. But see also the challenge. If we are not on God's side, we will meet the king as judge. So let's turn and make peace with him. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us when we don't see the world right. We long that you would help us too. Father, thank you for those who do, either because of their own sufferings or the sufferings they see and they, they uh, feel that. Help them to know that you will bring in uh, judgment, you will restore and help us all to know we can turn to you in boldness and pray. Lift up our concerns. Help us not to be people who grumble to each other, but bring our prayers to you, knowing that you hear them, that you delight to hear them, and that you answer them. Father, pray for those, though, who are not yours, who uh, in their hearts disregard your word, just as Jehoiakim did. Father, reveal that to them, we pray, that they might turn, that they might not be caught up, in this judgment, but rather might find Jesus and make peace with him. Dear Father, we pray, whatever it is you have said to us this morning, we long. Help us to believe it. Help us to lay hold of Jesus by faith and then to walk in it for his glory's sake and for our good. Amen.